Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. Elliot Cohen, my co-host, is not here today, but we are very fortunate to have as our guest co-host, Bill Crystal, the founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark and former editor-in-chief of The Weekly Standard. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Eric. Good to be with you. You've had a very busy week. I know this is the second time I've inflicted myself on you. You uh, were kind enough to host a event we did together for our friends at American Purpose on uh, opening up the Black Sea and... Uh, I know you've had a conversation with Joe Trippi that was very interesting this week, as well as a great podcast with Charlie Sykes. So you've been busy. Somewhat busy, reasonably busy, but I look forward to this very much. And maybe Dan will correct everything that we said on our on, on our event with uh, Jeff Gedman and the American Purpose folks. So, Well, he'll definitely revise and extend my remarks as he has been for 50 years. Our guest today is retired Ambassador Daniel Freed. Dan is a longtime colleague of mine. Uh, he was the U.S. ambassador to Poland. He's been the assistant secretary of state for European affairs. He's been the senior director at the NSC uh, for European affairs. He has been the coordinator of sanctions at the State Department and retired in 2017 after a very distinguished 40-year career in the Foreign Service. Now, full disclosure and truth in advertising requires me to to say that Dan and I met some 50 years ago on the steps of Willard Strait Hall in Ithaca, New York, where the two of us were debating the correct answer to a final exam question in the American diplomatic history course taught by the late Walter Lefebvre. And the question, as I recall it, although Dan may recall it differently, but the question was, did FDR intend Yalta to represent a concession to the Soviet Union of an Eastern European sphere of influence? Or was he just playing a long game and waiting until the war ended when the atomic bomb and, and U.S. economic power would allow him to uh, push harder for a liberated uh, Eastern, Eastern Europe? And Dan and I have been debating that question ever since. So, Dan, welcome. Thank you. You know, I wrote a book for Warsaw University, and one of the chapters centered around that very question. And for Poles, Yalta and Roosevelt's legacy at Yalta is a hot-button issue. So that debate continues. Eric, it's a pleasure to see you. Bill, great seeing you, and look forward to this discussion. Well, Dan, maybe we can start, and Bill, please uh, jump in with any questions you have along the way here, with your sense of where we are right now in the in the Russia-Ukraine uh, war that began on February 24th. What's the, the state of play in your view? The war actually began in 2014, but the current phase of this war did begin on February 24th. The short answer to your question is, we don't know how this ends which is actually pretty astonishing. Russia attacks Ukraine, and we don't know who's going to win. 
the Biden administration predicted that Putin would assault Ukraine. They absolutely nailed that one, unfortunately. But fortunately, they screwed up the military analysis in the beginning. They believed that Putin would be in Kyiv, that the Russians would be in Kyiv within 72 hours. They did not expect that the Ukrainians would push the Russians back, nor that the Russian initial assault would be so badly organized, nor that the Russians would have to retreat in the north. Now, the Russians succeeded in the south. They broke out of Crimean Peninsula. They crossed the Dnieper River. They seized the city of Kherson. They have made slow advances in the Donbass, the part that they didn't capture in 2014. About two weeks ago, there was a general assessment in by the media that the Russian advance in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass was inexorable. They would grind the Ukrainians into dust and advance slowly, methodically, and unstoppably. I'm not sure, I wasn't sure that was true then, and it doesn't appear to be true now. The battlefield could end in all kinds of different ways, which is the chief variable in this conflict. I'm not saying the Ukrainians will win. I'm saying it is possible the Russians will fail. And by failure, I mean that their offensive in the East could slow to a crawl or stop altogether, and that the Ukrainians might find some success in taking back some of the territory in the South. The Ukrainians probably outnumber the Russians. The Russians' equipment is much more numerous than the Ukrainians, especially in artillery. But this notion of an inexorable Russian advance, not so fast. There have been reports in the last two weeks of Russian shortages. I was fascinated by one report that the Russians are reconstituting infantry units, but instead of the perfectly good Soviet-era BNP, as an infantry support vehicle, they're bringing in 1950s vintage artillery towing vehicles to provide infantry support. All right, that sort of suggests that the Russians are having equipment difficulties. The Biden administration could have, and in my view, should have been faster to send heavy equipment to the Ukrainians. They didn't because they thought the battle was lost and there was no point that once the battle began, the Russians would overwhelm the Ukraine. You mean at the outset? At the very outset. That's right. They changed their view. Within about six weeks, I think Biden's trip to Poland was important in that respect. Now the HIMARS are arriving and the Ukrainians are using them well. Other heavy equipment is arriving. I'm not saying the Ukrainians will win. I'm saying it is, an, it is open-ended. That's the chief variable. The second longer-term variable is what you said earlier, the balance of economic pressure. Uh, in Putin's favor, he has got the Germans by the throat as far as gas shortages is concerned. I can't think of many cases where a country's energy policy has proven to be so bad so clearly and so quickly. Germany allowed itself to become dependent on Russian energy. France didn't. Poland, which was dependent, even more so than Germany, managed to end its dependence. As has Latvia. Yeah. The Balt these countries took energy policy seriously. The Germans didn't until late. And now they're going to hurt. So Putin can argue, 
hey, the Germans are going to suffer. Their economy may go over a cliff. I just hold out into the fall. They're going to force the Ukrainians to sue for peace on my terms. On the other hand, the U.S. has some agency here. So do the Germans. The Green Party, a party that never shared the generally fatuous German view of mutual dependence on Russia being a good thing. The Green Party, which has has had pretty strong policy toward Russia, is in charge of the energy ministry. They're going to be looking for ways to mitigate Russian leverage. We can help them. It won't be fully mitigated, but even a little bit would help. And there are ways we can increase the pressure on the Russians. I commend to everybody a long Washington Post article about how the U.S. is trying to round up allied support for a price cap on Russian oil exports with Janet Yellen in the lead. I believe the article to be accurate. The G7 communique said they're looking at this oil price cap idea. Awkward. We've announced an initiative, but not implemented it. And look, Eric, there are lots of skeptics. There are people who say, knowledgeable people who say this will never work. Dan, could you explain just for our listeners kind of what the you know, oil price cap would do, how I mean, the idea, I think, in general is to diminish Russian revenue while keeping energy flows going. Can you explain how people argue? That's the idea. Okay, so why I focused on this. In sanctions, as in policymaking and maybe as in life, follow the money. Russia's number one export item is oil. Because of the spike in the price of oil, Russia is earning $20 billion a month, a month in oil revenues. Putin is financing his war from these revenues, which undercut the effect of the otherwise pretty impressive Biden administration and European sanctions. So the Biden administration has got a problem. If it tries to shut down Russian exports of oil, like the Iranian oil sanctions of the Obama administration, it risks further spiking prices. And obviously, with inflation or worry, gas prices in the U.S. high, the midterms coming up, Biden administration doesn't want to do that for perfectly understandable reasons. Ah, but the theory goes, suppose we use the threat of sanctions to support a price cap, a maximum price that we would allow Russia to sell its oil for, maximum uh, dollar per barrel price, that we would impose certain sanctions, for example, a sanction on insuring oil tankers and a sanction on oil tankers themselves. And a lot of the Russian oil is carried by Greek or Cypriot tankers. So we could do it. You impose the sanction, but you waive it if the oil is sold at a much lower price than the current market value. The idea is you allow the Russians to sell as much oil as they want at above the cost of production, so they're still making money, so it pays for them to sell it, but well below the current price. It's not perfect. They'd earn money from selling oil, but they'd earn a lot less. You're taking money out of Putin's pocket. You can see the elegance of the idea and why it appealed to somebody like Secretary Yellen. The Italians like it. Some of the Germans are interested in it. But I have to tell you, a lot of energy experts, a lot of other people don't think it's enforceable, that even if the purchasers of oil pretend to respect it, they'll do side deals with the Russians to compensate the Russians for the lower price and vitiate the sanction. You could get outside 
uh, buyers like India or China to come in who'd buy it at, at the higher price. Well, well, the theory is you threaten the Indians and the Chinese by not letting them ship the oil, uh, by threatening the tankers and the insurance. And maybe you even go after, you know, you threaten secondary sanctions on the Indians and the Chinese altogether. Now, remember, you're going to the Indians and the Chinese and saying, we want you to save money. You can hate our sanctions and denounce them all you want. But if you buy Russian oil at a lower price, you're going to save X billions of dollars. I'm not saying this is going to work. And people who know energy, the energy business much better than I do, have doubts that it'll work. So I'm not saying it's, a, it's an easy choice. I'm saying that there are reasons the Biden administration thinks it's worth a try. And they're putting a lot into this. And I don't blame them. In their position, I would look at it too. If it doesn't work, it's probably still worth the try, but they're going to have to figure out some way of eating into Putin's revenue. So that, I mean, that this discussion is going on right now. This is like real-time stuff. And it shows that the Biden administration is more determined and frankly more willing to take risks than the Obama people. You know, because they, they supported the sanctions. I was the sanctions coordinator during the Obama administration. But the Biden people are pushing the envelope hard. And they're crossing a lot of lines, you know, that I didn't think could be crossed. On the military side, there's still a lot of red lines like attackums, for instance, you know, off the table. Yeah, but uh, sure. But Eric, I remember the debate in the Obama administration where they wouldn't send any weapons to Ukraine at all. I mean, I lost that fight, but I was only the sanctions guy. That was a bad call. But if you look carefully at the people at the top of the Biden foreign policy team, they were the hawkish end of the Obama foreign policy team on the Russia-Ukraine issue in and after 2014. I mean, you know all these people. Bill, any thoughts or questions? I mean, you and I have had this discussion about the Black Sea. I thought maybe you might want to uh, ask Dan to grade my homework on opening the Black Sea. Now, I'm curious how worried you are about the economic, uh, it'd be good to tighten the screws on Russia, but what about the economic damage being done to Ukraine, both in terms of shutting down their exports and just, of course, the cost of the war, the damage that's being done physically by the Russian attacks? Uh, and how much do you think, how able are we to help them uh, make them whole or at least make them whole enough to keep fighting? And, and, what, and how important do you think right. the Black Sea... Uh, trying to open up the Black Sea and uh, is and how practical are the ideas to, to do that? Okay, two questions. First, it always pays, I discovered, to read communiques in their entirety. That's because you were educated by Straussians at Cornell. <laughs> yeah, read the text. Well, uh, because I spent 40 years in government, man, and you know perfectly well that communiques take a lot of energy. And they do indicate a direction of policy thinking. So buried in the G7 communique about Ukraine, last paragraph is a wonderful sentence, says that the G7 agreed to look at the possibility of using the frozen Russian foreign exchange reserves to help Ukraine. Now, that's a lot of money. $300 billion. $300 plus billion, you betcha. You know, we locked it down. I couldn't believe we did that. That was great move. It was done over a weekend in about 36 hours. 
It had to be done once the banks were closed before they reopened. So that was a bold move. I just loved it. So we locked down over half of Russian foreign exchange reserves, the more useful half. The U.S. doesn't have very much of that. It's, it's a few billion, but it's, it's in the European Central Bank, I think the British, the French, Germans, scatter all over Europe. That doesn't mean we're, that sentence doesn't mean we're going to do it, but it means we've put it on the table. And I would bet dollars to rubles the U.S. put that sentence there. But everybody agreed to it. Look, central bankers and lawyers don't like this. They don't like the idea of seizing for even frozen assets. But you don't have to be a genius to figure this one out. You want to go back to your part, national parliament and ask for more money to support Ukraine? When you're sitting on X billions of dollars of Russian money, you can ask your taxpayers to make up the damage of Putin's war when you can use his money to make up that damage? I like the politics of that issue. Now, the U.S. can't do it alone because we don't have that much money of the frozen, I mean, we don't have enough of the frozen Russian assets to make it work. But the political argument, pretty powerful. I mean, Bill, that's my answer to your question. I would sure want to go in that direction. And the administration is thinking about it. They're, I mean, the fact that they're even thinking about it is, if you know the way you know governments work and they regard this sort of thing, it shows you just how far we've come. Doesn't mean we're there. But this fall, when the economic bite of Russians' gas cutoffs hurts in Europe and the Ukrainian economy is hurting, yeah, I, I bet you we come back to this issue. And we should. We should. I mean, there is some precedent. I'm not a lawyer on these things, much less a specialist in these issues. But you could probably make a reasonable legal case. And you sure as hell could make a good political one. So those are, I mean, those are the variables. We are not without some agency here. This idea that the that Putin has all the cards, man, we, we've got a few. Oh, that's a good, that's a good point to make and a good attitude to have. What about the blockade? Do you think it's, how important it would it be to escort, to be able to allow, to help oh. Ukraine export grain and how feasible is it? The Biden administration so far seems shy about doing things that could cause a direct military confrontation, and this could. I think they're, before they get to that point, they're probably going to look at alternative transport for Ukrainian grain through Poland, th and through Poland to Polish ports, through Poland and Lithuania to the port of Klaipeda. Then it comes, becomes a question of the numbers. How much can you actually get out, or is this all talk? There's also the chance that you could do a deal. You know, the Turks could come up with something. There could be some way forward. I noticed that today the Biden administration put out a fact sheet that uh, pointed out that U.S. sanctions don't actually hit exports of Russian food, which is a, a Russian line with the global south. That You know, the food shortages are all our fault. But, Bill, I haven't answered your question. And I, and I don't know that the Biden administration is ready for that kind of a confrontation. You know, land, rail, and air are um, insufficient. insufficient to get 22 million tons of grain that's stored in silos in Ukraine now. And that's just from the winter harvest. The summer harvest is about to start. 
you're going to have problems, you know, if you can't move more of that grain out of storage, storing the current crop. I mean, in addition to going out through Poland and Klaipeda, there's also, of course, the Danube ports of Ukraine that are being uh, reopened, and you can get some of it by rail to Romania, which can then take it out through the Black Sea, etc. So if it doesn't go directly out of Odessa, but it's still not going to be enough, I, I, I don't think, anyway. I mean, I did see that the UN was saying today that the talks that have been going on in Istanbul, which include this at this point, the Ukrainians, unlike the conversations that Erdogan was having over the last several days with Putin and uh, and then serially with Zelensky, that they've, quote, made progress. I mean, I still am very much a skeptic that Putin's going to allow progress to be made. But it, it does seem to me that this throws into relief, though, the the sort of economic side of this that you've been talking about. And you, you made several comments, Dan, about the fall, you know, what happens when Germans get cold. And so I'm curious, what, what do you think the sort of timeline is here in terms of, you know, we've talked about the potential for Ukraine on the battlefield to turn the tide a bit with HIMARS, perhaps take back some territory in the South. Uh, I think it'll be harder to take back some of the territory in in the Donbass, because I think the Russians are kind of really digging in and, and reinforcing. And it's one thing for the Ukrainians to be able to defend with their numbers. Another thing for them to take back a lot of a lot of territory. So you could see that continuing to play out. But they need nine billion a month just to keep the government turning over. You know, we've got the forty billion dollar package, not all of which is economic support. The EU has a $9 billion package, $1 billion of which they've managed to come up with. I mean, at what point does this not become sustainable? And at what point does European unity start to break down to validate what you described as Putin's theory of the case, that he'll get the euros to break with us and force the Ukrainians to sue for peace? What, what's the timeline here? One, I don't know. Nobody knows. Two, the fall is going to increase the pressure, that's for sure. Three, we need to use the, the weeks ahead to put our thumb on the scale. We have some agency. You know the old, I think it was Steve Hadley used to say, the difference between an academic and a policymaker is that the academic sees the glass half empty, cracked, water running out, and if you touch the glass, you'll slice open your hand. The policymaker looks at that same glass and says, hmm, hmm, some duct tape, a straw, you know, a, a, a refilling system. I can make this work. That's where we are. What can we do to increase the Ukrainians' ability to have relative success on the battlefield, to put pressure on the Russians, to use that to shore up European political will so that we can avoid that crunch that you were talking about? or manage it better. I don't know, but I do know this. When this war started, I saw three options. One was a Russian blitzkrieg success. Not even Germany against Poland in September 1939, but more like Germany versus Royal Yugoslavia in April 1941, where the whole country collapsed within about a week and almost no German casualties. That's what Something like that is what Putin had in mind. Many people thought that was the most likely outcome. The second option was something that you know very well, Eric. It's the Winter War. 
Stalin attacks Finland in December 1939. The Finns give him a bloody nose. He comes back with more troops. He grinds the Finns down. They have to sue for peace. They lose a bunch of territory, but they, they save their country. At the time, I thought that was the best Ukraine could do. Now, that's the best Russia can do. Blitzkrieg success is not going to happen. The winter war scenario is now Russia's best hope of success. But there's a third option, 1905. That's the Russo-Japanese War where the Russians attack Japan and they think because the Japanese aren't white and the Russians put this clearly that they'll overcome them. They'll overcome the Asian people. And of course, they got trounced badly. They lost not one but two fleets. They really got smashed. And then there was a revolution in Russia. The 1905 scenario is not the most likely outcome, but it is in play. So things have shifted strategically in Ukraine's favor. Our job is to keep moving them to be in Ukraine's favor. And the Biden administration has set itself up well. What they've said is when the time comes for negotiations, it has to be the Ukrainians that want the negotiations. And we have to put Ukraine in the most favorable possible position for those negotiations. They haven't ruled it out. They haven't ruled out negotiations. They haven't demanded, you know, total victory. But right now is not the time to start coming up with elaborate plans for how much land and how many people the Ukrainians have to surrender to the Russians. If I were in government, I wouldn't commission that kind of a study. That's terrible. You don't need to. Just concentrate on moving the needle. And yes, the fall could be a crunch point and a nasty one. But right now, our job is to do everything we can to weaken the Russians economically, mitigate the damage, the, the economic damage the Russians are threatening to do to us, the West, not to the U.S. so much, and help the Ukrainians on the battlefield. On the economic point you just made, Dan, let me ask you, I mean, you're a former sanctions coordinator. Everybody said at the outset that they were impressed by the unity of the West in imposing the sanctions, how far the sanctions went, the addition of export controls, which have had a lot of impact on Russia and its ability to reconstitute some of its military capability that's been lost in these opening months of the war. A lot of different assessments of how much the sanctions are going to hurt the Russian economy. I mean, Putin's been talking about how the economic blitzkrieg didn't hurt us. We're, we're doing fine. His own central banker, Nabulina told him it was going to probably lead to 12% contraction in the economy over a year time. Uh, you've seen other estimates of you know 15%. Goldman Sachs has an estimate of 30%. As a former coordinator of sanctions, well, actually, let me add one other piece, which is we, we've seen evidence the sanctions are biting in terms of the automobile industry, for instance, which is kind of grinding to a halt in Russia. Exactly. We've seen it affect their airlines because you're going to start seeing airplanes falling out of the sky because they can't get spare parts and maintain them. Uh, but what more can be done on the sanctions front? Do you feel like we've done, you know, have we shot our bolt on sanctions? Have we done everything we can, you know, or is there more to do? That Mike McFall and uh, some colleagues have, a, you know, as you know, a, a working group on sanctions. They've suggested that maybe we've only done about 55% of what we could do. So what more is there that we could do and what's holding us back, given what you just said? Why won't we just uh, fire everything in the, in the sanctions canon now that we can? Well, 
Okay, the, the, I'll get into the details of what more we can do and should do. But the trouble with sanctions is that they do work, but they're not going to work according to the timeline that you've put out, put into your memo to the president or the secretary. Okay. It, it's the old, you know, it's what we used to say about the cold war. If you could go back in a, in a time machine and talk to Harry Truman and, and, and George Marshall and Dean Atchison, and you say, guess what guys, your strategy is going to succeed completely. Bad news. You're all going to be dead. You know, it's a timeline thing. I'm not talking about 45 years, but it will take a few it will take a few years for the cumulative impact of these sanctions including the export controls which have caused the production difficulties you were talking about to really change the political balance in Russia which they can do but it'll take a while what can we do well first don't rely on sanctions solely military equipment has a faster a shorter-term impact. But to answer your question, well, the biggest thing is the oil price cap. That's Russia's number one export. You serious about sanctions? Figure out a way to go after that. They're trying. And then and then we have it, you know, you can have a discussion of whether it can work. But they're not going small. They're not doing little stuff. Go after other Russian exports. Uh, the G7 hit gold. That's, I think, Russia's number three or four after gas. Gas is two. Hard to go after gas. So they're going after number one. They're going after number three. There are other exports we could go after. The U.S. ban on exports of semiconductors, chips to Russia, that's wonderful. It's had a real fast impact on automobile production and tank production. You're in a war. You don't want problems with tank and other armored vehicle production. Are there other critical technologies we could use? We've increased tariffs on Russian products we are importing. And we I think we're going to send that money back to Ukraine. That's not a lot, but it's some. I already mentioned the issue of using the $300 billion plus dollars of frozen assets for Ukraine. It's huge. It's a lot of money. That's not going to hurt the Russian economy more because they, all, they don't have access to that money right now. Now, okay, in addition to this, there are sanctions against, you know, there are a few more Russian banks you could hit, Russian industry you need to go after. And this is, it's labor intensive, but go after sanctions evaders. Then there's the question of individual sanctions. There, I know Mike McFall's group. I've, I've sat, I've gone to a, quite a few meetings and I applaud Mike for doing it. They've suggested going big and broad going after thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of Russians, members of the United Russia, Putin's party, you know, mass sanctions. That's one way to go. Another way to go is to go after Putin himself and his corrupt networks. Identify them, expose them, rip that stuff up. You know, best case, you pull on a thread and you discover some of Putin's hidden assets. Freeze those. Go after his inner circle. That's labor intensive. It's not going to change Putin's calculation right away. But this stuff accumulates. I mean, think of the history of the Soviet Union when you and I, Eric, were on the Soviet desk in the second Reagan term. Everybody thought it was an article of faith that the Soviet Union was winning the Cold War. Remember that? 
among the Reaganites, except for President Reagan himself and George Shultz, who actually understood the strategic situation very well, is that the Soviets were in decline and it could be terminal decline. Reagan thought it was terminal decline and he was absolutely right. Before Gorbachev, there was the period of stagnation. Zastoy. Zastoy, exactly. And we're in that kind of a period right now, right now, where, and I remember I lived in the Soviet Union back in those, in those years. You lived in Grigory Romanov's Leningrad and got, got the crap beaten indeed. out of you by the KGB, as I recall. Well, everybody has adventures, gave me great stories. By the way, Putin was working in the Leningrad branch of the KGB in those very years. So it's his fault. Yeah, I'd like to think he had his eye on me because I was in charge of relations with dissidents and Jewish refuseniks and the Baltic states. I had loads of fun. But that's a digression. Soviets at the time were almost in a state of controlled schizophrenia. They would proclaim their fidelity to the Soviet system. But at the same time, they would say things that indicated they knew they couldn't go on like this, that they knew their situation was in unsustainable on some level. They had no idea what would come next, but what came next was Gorbachev, an attempt to do what turned out to be impossible and reform the Soviet system. My point is that we should not straight line Russian history and assume that the current trend will be the trend forever. Hasn't Russian history for the past 40 years been marked by discontinuities? Brezhnev to Gorbachev to Yeltsin to Putin. That's not a straight line. We shouldn't think that nothing can change. That was a mistake we made in the Brezhnev period. And you remember the U.S., let us say, analytic community, to be polite, thought that the Soviet Union was competitive with the United States, including the Soviet economy. News to all of us who lived in the Soviet Union. I don't mean to make too much of the, you know, to suggest a rigid parallel. I am suggesting that we shouldn't assume Putinism is forever. And, you know, one thing I learned working for George Shultz and Reagan, do the right thing, squeeze them hard, see where that gets you. Sometimes you get good results by doing so. Yeah, as as Napoleon said, on s'engage puis on voit, right? Well, and so you launch some you launch know, something and then see what happens. But help the Ukrainians. Yeah, of course. Look, they're fighting for their lives. If they wanted to cut a deal, if they thought that they had to settle to stop the killing, back them up. Just to, while we're on the Cold War analogies, which I also you know they're so interesting, though one obviously has to be careful about them. So the unity of the West held more or less, I mean, for those 45 years, though it was precarious at many times, including when you two were in government and were dealing with it. You then were ambassador to Poland uh, in the late 90s and ran European affairs for the State Department and NSC in the 2000s. So you're very familiar with the European situation. Are you, what do you think about, let's just call it, uh, about Europe? I mean, is, it seems like it's doing a little better than some of us expected in terms of hanging in there and, you know, lot, large parts of it are actually slightly more aggressive than we are. And Germany at least isn't totally, you know, hasn't gone totally south, though it seems more shaky. Or, you know, I'm just curious, what's your, what's well, your sense of the, the Europe situation and how important is that? It's very important. There is a danger 
that Europe political unity will collapse. I think that danger is exaggerated. I think you're absolutely right. Europe has done better than they expected themselves. So let's look at the European Union. The Eastern Chur countries are solid, with the exception of Hungary. You know, Bulgaria is not going to be a leader, but they're not going to be a problem. Poland has reemerged as a leader around which a consensus of the Eastern Chur countries has coalesced. And they're great on Ukraine issues. I mean, just you know, all in. And that's not just the current right of center Polish government. It's liberals, too. And they're also bearing a lot of the burden, right? They've got, you know, a lot of Ukrainian refugees and two million. I mean, they've done they've done magnificently. Uh, The Finns, the Swedes, like they're solid. They're just like the Poles and the Baltics. The Danes are solid. So, okay, Germany, France, Italy, Spain. Spain is pretty good. You talk to the Spanish, they'll remind you that the Russians were interfering in the Catalonia referendum. They haven't forgotten. They're not going to break consensus, and they're not, they're not as vulnerable to Russian energy pressure. Macron, like many French presidents, drives Americans crazy. I don't know. There's something in the atmosphere of the, the Elysee, the presidential palace in France, that makes French presidents sound like de Gaulle. And Americans go, you know, we get hysterical, makes our brains explode. But French policy has actually been pretty good. They're sending um, a, a combat battalion to Romania. They've supported the sanctions. They're sending the Cesars to, to Ukraine, which are, yeah. you know, not HIMARS, but they're pretty damn good. Macron phones, Ukra- phones Putin. He doesn't get anywhere and people criticize him. I'm not going to bother criticizing him for this. It's not great. And there are some French, a lot of French people in government who think, you know, they, Ukraine ought to just fold. But they're not there yet as a government. Germany. Well, Italy has been actually pretty good, better than expected, not great. We'll see what happens with their current political crisis with Draghi having at least says he's going to submit a resignation. It's been rejected. Yeah, it's no surprise. Germany. They're in shock because a generation of fatuous German expectations about Russia have been blown up. The social democratic view, that view has just been proven false. But the Greens in government, foreign ministry and economic and energy ministry, have been strong on Russia for years. Maybe my favorite, one of my favorite, if not my favorite leftist party in the world. Absolutely staunch. So are the free Democrats. So are the Christian Democrats now. So you have the social Democrats who, they sound like they're in shock because their old talking points have been blown up and they haven't come up with new ones. Well, I'm not going to join the chorus, though, of people blasting the Germans. Who didn't get Russia policy wrong? Like Bush, we, we tried in the Bush administration with Putin. That didn't work out. Obama tried the reset. That didn't work out. Biden tried putting the Russia relationship in a stable and predictable place, and that didn't work out. These were all honest failures. By honest, I mean that when the policy failed, none of those administrations doubled down. They all changed course. So let's let the Germans deal with this instead of throwing mud at them. Like, they got it wrong, but then who didn't? Well, the Poles would would say, we've been warning you for years, and they're right, of course. And the Estonians and the Latvians and the Lithuanians. 
Right, absolutely. But now the point is to help the Germans come up with a more sustainable policy and avoid some kind of collapse politically as the economy bites. You know, all hands on deck, make this work. The possibility of, you know, failure exists. So does the possibility of success. That's a hell of a success. If Biden leads the West to turn back Putin's aggression, he will be able to say, yeah, Afghanistan, but Ukraine. And in the Cold War, as you know, our policy worked out in Europe very well. It didn't always work out in what we used to call the third world. Biden's old enough to remember all that stuff. Sometimes when he speaks, I recall the tradition of Cold War liberals, pre-Vietnam Democrats. You know, his inner Harry Truman is there, and he's old enough. He's 10 years older than I am. He's old enough that that's not memory. That's lived experience, right? So I think that in the Biden administration foreign policy team, at least the president himself, Tony Blinken, Toria Newland, and you know people like Celeste Wallander, the assistant secretary of defense, they're all channeling their inner Harry Truman. Um, you know, progressive at home, in the old sense, right? Not the contemporary American sense. Progressive at home, strong foreign policy abroad. In the Henry Henry Jackson, let's make it the Henry Jackson sense. Eric, I'll take whatever label works best and buys the <laughs> maximum amount of, polit- of bipartisan political support for a strong American foreign policy. I'm with you. Look, I don't want to be too optimistic. The situation is fraught with peril. Winter is coming. I get all of that. But Eric, Bill, y'all have worked in administrations. You know the natural condition of foreign policy making is to face insurmountable obstacles on the road to inevitable disaster. And that's every goddamn day. <laughs> Dan, I want to draw your attention. I want to draw your attention to a darker corner of Europe, if you'll let me, because uh, some of our listeners have expressed, uh, based on earlier episodes of Shield of the Republic, interest in this, which is what used to be called the last dictatorship in Europe, but it's not the last anymore because it's, it's the next to last, I guess, uh, along with Putin. And that's uh, Alexander Lukashenko's Belarus. And after we talked with David Kramer uh, a couple of weeks back, some listeners raised concerns about the statements that Putin was making about transferring nuclear weapons to Belarus, the amendment of the uh, Belarusian constitution to allow nuclear weapons to be on its territory, et cetera. Uh, You talked about earlier the fact that the administration, although it's been pretty bold in what it's done economically, has been a little bit more reticent about things that might uh, lead to escalation, the military, you know, direct military conflict and the prospect of escalation. So how should we think about the threats to put nuclear weapons in Belarus and the nuclear threats that Putin has made in general. And do you think that the Biden team has maybe been a little bit too self-deterred when it comes to the military side? I want to break down your question in component parts. First, there is the Putin threat to actually use nuclear weapons against Ukraine or against us. I don't rate that as terribly high. Then there is the question of Putin stationing nuclear weapons. I rate that as quite high. 
That is, if Putin has to settle in Ukraine from a position of relative weakness, he's going to want to cover it up with a whole bunch of other stuff, including this. He could do it. He could do it. NATO has decided to increase its force presence in NATO's eastern tier. Obama started that, and Trump, to his credit, continued it. Now the Biden people have increased this. The West Europeans are going to station up to brigade strength units in each of the Baltic states. The U.S. already has a brigade in Poland plus a battalion. We're going to add more. And don't forget, there is a mass opposition movement in Belarus. Its opposition, led by Stanovskaya, is in exile. But they have structures in the country. They remind me a bit of old solidarity, except that solidarity's leadership was in prison inside Poland after martial law, and Belarus's opposition leadership is outside the country, but the structures are there. That's not just a few dissidents like the people hanging around with Václav Havel at the Magic Lantern Theater. This is a mass movement. Whatever else we do with Belarus and against the Lukashenko regime, we ought to be prepared to provide long-term support to the democratic opposition. You know, in the 80s, support for solidarity was considered hopeless, even destabilizing by some of the so-called realists at the time. They won. They won when nobody expected them to. Well, not many anyway. Invest in Belarus, in Belarus democracy. And remember that in Ukraine earlier and Belarus now, Contemporary national identity is crystallizing in a democratic political form, which was not necessarily the case. In Eastern Europe, it hasn't always been the case. But it is the case now. We have to remember that. Have faith in our own system and then deal with the here and now. Dan, we're going to have to wrap up uh, this episode, I'm afraid. We could go on for a very long time on all of these subjects, uh, and I always uh, enjoy chewing over these things with you. I remember Likewise. many, many, many long discussions in various you know, different guises. I wonder if you could just go over for us what the stakes are here. You know, you talked about the, you know, the possibility of success and the possibility of failure. What, what's at stake here? What, you know, why is it so urgent? Why do so many of us they think it's so important to defeat Putin's aggression, even in the face of those who, so-called realists who want to pressure Ukraine to make some kind of accommodation or those who think we should be focused on America first? Steve Bannon said, you know, today on his podcast that anyone who supports Ukraine is a simp. Uh, you know, what, what's at stake here? When the U.S. became a world power, in the early years of the 20th century, we realized that we shouldn't limit ourselves to a mere sphere of influence, that our national interest would be advanced by our promotion of a global system that favored freedom, that that would be good for our bottom line, that it fit our natural American advantages, our Yankee ingenuity. This was a little bit Teddy Roosevelt, more Woodrow Wilson, a lot of Franklin Roosevelt. It wasn't idealism. It was a canny appreciation that America's national interests advanced with America's values because the genius of our system was that we would prosper when other countries prospered as well. Therefore, they would have a natural stake in joining with us. 
simple. I mean, it was Immanuel Kant who thought it up, right? The theory of perpetual peace between republics. But the Americans had the audacity, the sheer nerve, as well as the raw power to try to put it into effect. We're supporting Ukraine because the American system in the world works really well. It works a hell of a lot better than the spheres of influence that preceded it. Don't take my word for it. Remember World War I, World War II, and the Cold War? Was that great? You want that back again? I mean, the realists. What (laughs) in the world is realistic about putting your faith in the stability of dictatorships? What, are you kidding me? That's not realism. That's power worship. America, in the years of its wisdom, understood that our values and our interests advanced together. Putin wants to take us back to sphere of influence. And a sphere of influence, Putin style, means repression, mass killings, and then perpetual instability because the Ukrainians are not going to like being under his thumb. It's not stable any more than than Soviet-dominated Eastern Europe was stable. It wasn't stable. That's why it was undone. This is a big deal. Dan, that's, I think, a great summation. Bill, that sounds to me like national greatness republicanism circa, you know, the Weekly Standard in 1999. What do you think? Yeah, and Scoop Jackson. Uh, no, no, it's the Democrats. It's Woodrow yeah, Wilson. Yeah, no, we need to, Hubert Humphrey. Roosevelt. Look, it's Eric. It's the American creed. Yeah. Both parties have a stake. Totally. At least the Republican Party used to. Yeah, and yes, and, and John McCain loved Henry Scoop Jackson. Actually, I mean, he knew it was a young, you know, when he was a young man. You know, so. Ronald Reagan, John McCain, Harry Truman—they all got pieces of this right. It's the American grand strategy. Well, I think that's a great note on which to to end this particular episode of Shield of the Republic. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you for coming on and and spending uh, this time with Bill and me. I want to thank Bill, who's been peripatetic this week for filling in for Elliot. Bill, thank you. My pleasure. And thanks, Dan. That was great. My pleasure. If you did like this episode, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts and feel free to email us at shieldoftherepublic at gmail.com.